You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again and welcome to uh, welcome again to Faith Presbyterian Church. We're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 21. Ordinarily, I have been preaching through Luke's gospel. We'll look at the a Palm Sunday passage this morning, and uh, we'll look at a resurrection passage next week. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, is uh, what we'll be looking at this morning. Little theologians, this is a scene that you know well. This is when uh, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. I'm not, I'm not as interested in a picture of Jesus as I am uh, a picture of Jerusalem and a crowds of people. Uh, we, as we read this passage, ought to assume that the crowd was very substantial. A significant number of people are gathering to see Jesus. So what I'm interested in is a picture of the crowd I'm going to talk a lot about that crowd this morning. Matthew 21 is what we're looking at. If you don't have a Bible, uh, Joel can get a Bible uh, to you. Uh, It'll be important to to have Matthew 21 open uh, in front of you. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Thanks, Joel. Let's pray. Let's pray before we read this passage. Father, thank you for speaking to us. We're grateful that Jesus comes into this uh, city of Jerusalem. We understand that uh, Jesus was not necessarily welcome in that city, but you you pushed your way into their lives. And you do that uh, Sunday morning as we gather together. You force yourself upon us with your word. You challenge us with it. Father, we thank you for that challenge. Would you do that robustly this morning? Even if it pains us, may we see your truth more clearly in your word. Holy Spirit, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, Matthew chapter 21, uh, the first 11 verses. Please listen to God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once." This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of our Lord. I want to tell you three things that ought to be noticed about this man. We have to ask the question, what kind of a man is this? 
But before I tell you these three things, however, let me warn you that I'm not here offering simply theological assertions, of course. I believe that Scripture is very clear that Jesus of Nazareth is the very Son of God, that He is divine, that He is both eternal and from before all time, and that He alone is the center of all reconciliation with God. All of these things are true and critical for belief. You should believe these things about Jesus. But what I'm asking you to do right now is to simply observe in this text what kind of man this Jesus is. And as you get to know Him in Scripture, you should be aware of these three things, that He is a compassionate man, an obedient man, and a disarming man. Furthermore, just to be clear, I don't think that these qualities of this man are reproducible in any other man. So, for instance, when I say that Jesus is compassionate, I'm saying that there is no man on earth, nor will there ever be, who will travel so far to express mercy to his enemy. And when I say that He is obedient, I mean that He is obedient to the most detail-oriented, demanding, fearsome, and powerful boss in all the cosmos. And when I say that He is disarming, I'm not saying that He is merely surprising or shocking or unexpected. I mean that He radically overturns every supposition and every expectation of every man on earth. I want you this morning to learn what kind of man this Jesus of Nazareth is. Perhaps I should tell you why this question is so important. Many people do not believe in Jesus today thinking that they already know who this Jesus is. Most self-described enlightened people who do not put their trust in Jesus are not followers of Him because they are confident that they have already contemplated this man and they have found this man not to be worth believing in. They are assured that they have already considered what kind of man He is. The results of that consideration is this. He is not the kind of man who can help me. An ordinary Christian ought to find this to be sad. I find it to be sad. All of us should. However, keep in mind that this is not a terribly far-fetched notion. For instance, to someone who grew up in America, it might make perfect sense that the man George Washington would be more relevant to them than Jesus of Nazareth. One is the first president of our nation, a founding father. The other is just one of many first-century Jews who lived in a land that they've never been to nor ever plan to visit Again, if someone is enthralled by pop culture, it actually makes sense that their current favorite celebrity is more relevant to them than some first century Jew. You see, for these individuals, they would rather contemplate what kind of a man George Washington is or what kind of a person their favorite celebrity is rather than what kind of man Jesus is. They have heard of Jesus. They perhaps even know people who put their trust in Him for eternal life. But it is strange to think that this man from the Middle East who lived and died 2,000 years ago should summon their attention more so than any other figure in their lives. Even as a follower of Christ, I understand this logic and so should you. To ask people to contemplate what kind of man Jesus is is a rather tall order. So let's start slowly. Scripture is about to show us that this first century Jew, Jesus of Nazareth, is the man whom God intends to rule the entire world by. 
As each of us here this morning are cohabitants in this world, I would ask you to humbly pay attention to what Holy Scripture says about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. God intends to rule the entire world by him. So first of all, the scene shows us a compassionate man. It might be helpful for us to consider a little background to our text. You see, Jerusalem is the capital city of a nation that technically is no nation at all. Jerusalem is the capital of Judea, which is but a small portion of a Roman province called Syria. Jerusalem is a city, but it's hardly a significant city. It helps us to understand the story of Jerusalem by understanding the story of a large building near the center of Jerusalem called the temple. This temple was constructed some 520 years before Jesus was born during a time when Jerusalem was the center of the nation of Israel, which was really no nation at all. The first temple of Jerusalem was built by a great king of these people, King Solomon, way back in the 10th century, but Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that temple and mercilessly left it as a pile of rubble in the center of another pile of rubble, the city that was once Jerusalem. A series of Persian kings in the 6th century decided that it was beneficial to their empire if they allowed some of their captives, not all, some of their captives, Jewish captives, to return to what these people call their capital city to rebuild one of their religious structures. This was a real estate regentrification project. It was not a free nation that built this temple. It was built by the captives of Persia. The temple that they built, the one that Herod would later modify, still stands in this captive city of Jerusalem, now in the greedy hands of Rome. A temple made by captives in a city inhabited by captives. This is important to note because our passage tells us that the inhabitants of this captive city take great notice at Jesus' arrival Three, perhaps even four times were told in this passage about the crowds that greeted his entry. And in verse 10, we read that the whole city was alerted by the approach of Jesus. You know, being understood as a captive is perhaps a strange thing to think about living in a country which we have never been subject to another nation. However, Many of us can imagine quite easily what captivity must feel like. Some of you feel captive right now by a job that is not fulfilling, by a marriage that's not fulfilling, by a life that's not fulfilling. Some of you here this morning feel captive to a low income that is looking more and more over time to be a permanent reality for your life. Some of you here are captive to debt, at least you feel it. Some of you feel captive to poor health. Some of you feel captive to our current president or captive to the potentiality of a new one. It's not a stretch to imagine captivity, is it? But what's different about this captivity is that the Bible says over and over again that the captivity of the people in Jerusalem is the result of judgment. Ezra clearly says Jerusalem's captivity is the result of fathers of Israel who angered the God of heaven, that the iniquity of the kings and the iniquity of the priests have led to this. Isaiah says exile is the result of a people who have no knowledge of God, Isaiah 5. Jeremiah is even more forceful. 
This prophet says that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet into the city of Jerusalem, but the people would not pay attention to his words. They would not listen to his prophets. Nehemiah says they killed God's prophets. Jerusalem, her inhabitants are captive for a reason. Jesus later on in his time in Jerusalem, his last week, will say that Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Matthew 23, 37. How about that as a descriptor of the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Look at the very end of our passage in verse 11 where people say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They suspect that he is a prophet. But this is a city that kills those kinds of people. The Bible tells us that the inhabitants of this city deserve nothing but judgment. But Jesus is compassionate. He comes. He enters this city. He enters into their judgment. A city that herself is the center of God's judgment. A city that is known for killing God's messengers. But he enters. Just before coming to Jerusalem, two blind men call out to him from the side of the road, Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus goes to them and he heals their eyes. Why? Why would he do that? Matthew 20, verse 34 tells us, because his heart was moved with pity. He has compassion on a city filled with men and women on death row, and legitimately so. They are hungry for what? To kill another prophet of God. But he comes. He enters. What about his obedience, the obedience of this man? Notice how the passage displays a lot of obedient activities. Right there at the beginning, the two disciples are sent into a village. They're commanded to untie a donkey and a colt to bring them to Jesus. Uh, verse 6 says very clearly, the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. And so it would seem that there's a lot of obedience in this scene, but not that of Jesus, rather the obedience of the disciples. Uh, it is true that Jesus puts the action of the scene in motion with his orders, but but we mustn't forget verse 4. Look at what verse 4 says. That Jesus is directing all of these actions. Why? In obedience to the revealed will of God and His Word. Jesus is giving orders, but He is doing so that He might obey that which was spoken by God through His prophet Zechariah. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Jesus did this. Jesus put things in motion so that God's revealed Word would be exposed. Are you willing willing to admit that we're not an obedient people by nature, you and I? Are we comfortable admitting that? That we're not by nature obedient? We rather like being our own masters to direct our own courses and to do all of this for our own benefit. I think of Walt Whitman's long poem, Song of Myself, when he says, Nothing, not God, is greater to one than one's self. Not even God is greater to one than one's self. And in public, with you here and now, I'll confess that Whitman is outrageously arrogant. 
But in private, when I go before my God, I confess that Whitman and I are an awful lot alike. So much do I, too, love myself. And I'm going to assume that you love yourself as well. But in Jesus' mind, self is not what is critical. How is it that He can serve God by setting aside His self? Well, consider how tragic it is that many Christians think that Jesus is just a humble guy. He's humble simply because of His character. He's humble. Some people are arrogant. Some people are humble. Jesus is the latter type. I suspect we've not considered the type of humility that Jesus has A character in a novel of the British author Somerset Maugham argues that humility ought to be desired because it's the quality of quiet, simple, ignorant, unassuming people whom fate does not notice. Isn't that interesting? That's why you ought to be humble. Quiet, ignorant people who are utterly ignored by fate, they're humble. And so he says this, he says, let us be silent, content in our little corner, meek and gentle like them. This is the wisdom of life. I'm not convinced that humility is ignorance, that humility is just casting your future before the fates. And if that's not humility, what then is humility? Well, we know that the arrogant person happily, willfully worships self, but the humble person is far more brave, setting aside self to worship God. Jesus has actively set aside self in order to obey His heavenly Father. Everything that Jesus thinks and does is a response of obedience to the God who speaks through His prophets. How diligently do you think this man will obey his Father? He will not only enter the city, but he will turn his body over to the abuse of the inhabitants of this city. They will kill him, just as they've killed the prophets before him. And He will not resist. He will obey His heavenly Father's revealed will to such a degree that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, He will open not His mouth. He will obey to the death. He will obey to the death. What kind of a man is He? He's a compassionate man. He's an obedient man. He's also a disarming man. It may be odd to mention the disarming nature of this man as he enters Jerusalem, but there's no way around it. Look at verse 10. The city is stirred up. Literally, they're jostled about like an earthquake has struck their very souls. As readers, Matthew invites us to wonder why. Later, we will see that the same voices that praise Jesus on this day will ask for His execution, not even five days after this. But why? Why Why is this that they are so stirred? When they praise Jesus with the words of Psalm 118, they're crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! But it's actually pretty difficult to ascertain what is meant by this expression. It's generally thought that this is a Greek rendering of the Aramaic line in Psalm 118.25, meaning, save us or save now. 
One New Testament scholar, Gerald Hawthorne, whom I respect greatly, has reservations that Psalm 118 is in anyone's mind at all as Jesus enters Jerusalem. In fact, according to Dr. Hawthorne, they're uttering generic words not unlike other canned expressions offered on a holiday like happy holidays or best wishes. The use of hosannas left many commentators befuddled. Do you think they really know who this Jesus is coming in to their city? And I only mention this to say that what is more illuminating is not what they say or quote about Psalm 118, but what about they don't say, they don't quote. They don't say verses 8 through 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. They don't quote that line. And they don't say verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And they don't say verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And they don't say verse 27, the Lord is God and He has made His light to shine upon us. And they don't say verse 28, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. And they most certainly don't go to Psalm 118 verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus Himself will have to remind them of those particular lines in Psalm 118, and He does so in Matthew 21, 42. It would appear that the inhabitants of this city are fashioning Jesus after, after their own image, believing what they want to believe and leaving other details about the ministry of this King by the wayside. Just a real quick diversion to tell you a little bit what I mean. I hope that each of you understand what technologists mean when they say that we live in an age of distraction. Do you feel distracted? We are so inundated with data that it is amazing that we can focus for two minutes in a row. Thankfully, however, technology, the source of the problem, actually can repair the problem. In an interview at a technology event in Austin last week, a consultant by the name of Haley Pappas is excited about this new technology that she promises can deliver us finally and ultimately from the distractedness of the age in which we live in. Describing this technology, she says that she has access to a device that represents perhaps one of the only times when we are not distracted, where you are not looking at your phone or clicking on other tabs. You're literally consumed with the story that's being told around you. Miss Pappas is convinced that technology can deliver us from this age of distraction. And she's describing, funny enough, a virtual reality set of goggles to be released later in the year that immerses the user in another world, a world that is filled with focus and is devoid of distraction. Am I the only one who finds that to be ironic? Just yesterday, the Wall Street Journal reported that a man by the name of Simon Fuller, he is the man behind American Idol, uh, he has moved on to bigger and better things. He is working with a company called Pulse Evolution, of which he is a main shareholder, to create a new concert event in which he expects thousands of people to attend a full-length concert by Michael Jackson. A three-hour holographic event. The man is no longer living. But according to Simon Fuller, he will be giving a concert soon. You know, before we laugh, note that the people of Jerusalem have done something rather similar. They've created a virtual reality themselves in which Jesus is manageable. He's tame. 
He's normal. He can be shaped in their own image. He can become for them what they want him to become. He is a man-made hologram, a product of their work. He's not an independent man with a will. Hosanna indeed. But Jesus has unsettled them. He has walked right into the midst of their city, obeying none other than the Heavenly Father, the Maker of the cosmos, and He unsettles them. He will unsettle them more. He's disarming. Why do you suppose the world needs this kind of man? Compassionate, obedient, disarming? He enters Jerusalem with a regal demeanor, riding on a donkey, just as King Solomon once did by the insistence of King David. But Zechariah, whose words Jesus fulfills, is not actually talking about the king of Jerusalem. Did you catch that when we read Zechariah 9 earlier in the worship service? The man that's coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, this Jesus, this Messiah, he's not a king of Jerusalem. At least not Jerusalem alone. Zechariah 9.10 says this, in case you missed it. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a statement to everyone in this room that we are not talking about a local political situation. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, not as Jerusalem's king, but as the king of the whole world. And if you're not asking this question, what is this man like? You should be. Because what this means is that no man or woman can ply their way in this life without at some point dealing with what kind of man this is. If he is the king of the world, he has the right to demand an account for his world, to make demands of each and every inhabitant of this world, to make demands of each and every person in this room and every person you've met this morning or will meet today. He's not a local king. He's the king of the world. The Bible says that He will make this known at His second coming. And the people that you met earlier today and the people that you will meet later today, they will meet Jesus because He's not a local king. Even the dead will receive bodies. Why? So that those bodies can stand before the King of the world. The whole world should ask, what is it about this man? This morning we should ask, why do we need this kind of man? Let me quickly tell you that we need his compassion his first sermon in Isaiah 61, that's the text he preaches from, preaches from, is about delivering captives. We need a man who is compassionate to those who don't deserve compassion. We need a man for whom he can come to us and be near us and at the same time know everything about us. We need that man. We're captive. We're filthy. We're sinful. Will someone come close to me? Entering my life, understanding my temptations, my sin, my uncleanness, 
will he come so close that he'll touch me, that my uncleanness is taken upon himself and his cleanness comes to me. We need his compassion. But we also need his obedience. Because Romans 5 tells us that all humanity is born into the heritage of disobedience. Adam disobeyed, and his disobedience corrupted all mankind. But Jesus, he obeyed. He obeyed. And the second Adam divinely offsets the disobedience of Adam. We need his obedience. Because we, all of us, are the product of disobedience. And we need to be disarmed. My friends, we can become so thoroughly lost in our own system of sense-making. Everyone is a theologian. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The most profound atheist is a theologian. Everyone here in this room has been made with a seed of religion. It is inside of you. You desire to worship. You are made to worship. It is true for every human being ever born And if we don't worship Christ, we will create an alter reality in which we'll give ourselves an excuse to worship anything else. Anything but Christ. And someone needs to be honest and to tell us that. You were made to worship the God who has come to you in compassion. The God who has shown His faithfulness to you in giving you a better Adam. The gospel truth is the only truth. And if it doesn't disarm you, you're not listening carefully enough. You're not listening carefully enough. We need someone to knock the goggles off our faces and tell us the truth to rearrange the furniture of our minds and our souls that we would understand that we need this compassionate man. We need this obedient man. God, disarm us. For those of you who are here this morning who have not professed faith in Jesus Christ, this is not a message just for you. You didn't think I was going in that direction, did you? Christian, listen to this. Has Jesus become stale? Have you tamed Him? You must be disarmed by His extraordinary compassion that He would come to you in your weakness, entering into your darkness, to deliver you from that domain into another. Christian, you need to be reminded of that. This Jesus has done that for you. And you also need to be reminded that this Jesus is the obedient one, not you. You are not given special spiritual power to live a perfect life. Your perfect life is an alien righteousness that covers you because He obeyed. Christian, welcome to Palm Sunday. Be disarmed. Be disarmed. Let's pray together and let's baptize a baby. How about that? Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for knowing what we need, for sending to us a Redeemer, a perfect Redeemer, a compassionate Redeemer, an obedient Redeemer, a disarming Redeemer. Oh, Father, the grace that we have in this Redeemer is beyond our imagination. How foolish to chase after trifles. Thank you for saving us in this Redeemer. In his name, amen.